Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to episode 106 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how's your week been? Pretty much the same as every week, Leslie, but, you know, eyes on the prize, lots of TV, lots of silly awards, a big football game on Sunday, so there's stuff to keep busy with. Definitely, and we have a jam-packed episode this week, so much news going on, so let's just tee right into headlines. What do you say, Dan? Bring it on. Leading off, there's a big change happening at Amazon. Founder Jeff Bezos will step down as CEO later this year. Andy Jassy, who has served as CEO of Amazon Web Services, will take over as Bezos becomes executive chairman. It's an interesting move, and we don't know a whole lot about what Andy Jassy feels about film and TV, because he certainly hasn't been out at the Golden Globes schmoozing the way way that his predecessor has been. So definitely a story to, to keep an eye on. Yeah, this is definitely something we're going to follow up. Um, All I can say for sure is that I did save $2.25 at Whole Foods yesterday with my Amazon Prime membership. So, uh, so, so far, so good, Andy Jazzy, even though he hasn't really taken over. And my Amazon (laughs) fresh delivery has been coming early almost. So yeah, there's that. Ooh, excellent. Yeah. So we don't, we don't really know what that means, but rest assured, we will surely talk about it again. Uh, over at Disney, the the Mouse House continues to build out its Marvel world, and they've brought in Black Panther director Ryan Coogler on a five-year TV deal that will include a Wakanda TV series for Disney+. Over at the CW, the network is keeping with tradition and has handed out early renewals to 12 shows for the 21-22 broadcast season. Returning are All-American, Batwoman, Charmed, Dynasty, The Flash, In the Dark, Legacies, Legends of Tomorrow, Nancy Drew, Riverdale, Roswell, and Rookie Walker. Meanwhile, Superman and Lois, Kung Fu, and the Republic of Sarah have yet to launch and remain on the bubble, though the former show did get an order for two additional episodes. So CW showing confidence and keeping the lights on and business as usual, trying to get back to normal. And the the remarkable thing about these early renewals is how many years some of these shows have now suddenly apparently been on for. So the idea that something like Roswell is going to be now going into its fourth season or that In the Dark continues to be a TV show, these are things that that I find vaguely astonishing. And as many people on Twitter yesterday observed, it is still somewhat surprising – perplexing, confusing, or different to see a CW mass renewal without Supernatural in it. So 
You know, sunrise, sunset, things change. Uh, meanwhile, at Paramount Plus, the soon-to-be-renamed streaming giant has become the home for the long-rumored Frasier revival, starring, of course, Kelsey Grammer. Uh, Paramount Plus will be officially relaunched in March, and yes, of course, we will be talking about that more, so expect plenty of announcements from the streamer formerly known as CBS All Access in the weeks to come. In other streaming news, Netflix has renewed comedy On My Block for a fourth and final season. Apple is moving forward with its WeWork TV series, tapping Anne Hathaway to star opposite Jared Leto in the eight-episode limited series. And at the broadcast networks, pilot season is officially underway as ABC is moving forward with its Wonder Years update from Lee Daniels and a fairy tale anthology from the creators of Once Upon a Time. The CW is also readying a spinoff of the aforementioned and once again renewed All-American. Well, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. Leading off this week, award season has arrived with nominations unveiled for the Golden Globes, SAG Awards, and WGA Awards. Leading off, Dan, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association continues to throw curves to awards prognosticators with some head-scratching nominations and a few major snubs on the TV side. You know, look, The Crown led all TV nominees with six, followed by the final season of Shit's Creek and reigning Emmy champ, uh, which had five. Then Ozark and The Undoing tied for third with four nominations apiece. The big surprises in the drama and comedy categories were the inclusion of Ryan Murphy's critically panned Ratchet and Darren Starr's Emily in Paris, both of which scored series nominations, as well as mentions for their respective stars, Sarah Paulson and Lily Collins. Dan, I'm looking at social media and there are some calls for angry Dan on this. And as someone who reads your Twitter uh, feed, I don't think I have to do much work to bring out angry Dan here. No. And, you know, it's it's not my it's not my desire to pick on Netflix per se here. And it's also not my desire to pick on Netflix for something that is, in this case, really just something they did well. I mean, it's not Netflix's fault that the Hollywood Foreign Press is a ridiculous organization that's easily swayed. Netflix just did what they were supposed to do, which was making sure that Ratchet and Emily in Paris were on their radars and that they were things that those quote-unquote journalists uh, found interesting. But unfortunately, it is so easy to look at the TV category and, categories and to unfortunately point the blame for the absurdity of the nominations in those two Netflix directions. Uh, Ratchet and Emily in Paris being nominated is an embarrassment. There's, there's just no other way to, to put it. Th those are bad shows in a television landscape that shouldn't require honoring bad shows. There are enough good shows that you should never have an outright bad show like those two getting in and gracious. Uh, and the thing is, I completely understand the Sarah Paulson and the Lily Collins. If those two nominations had gotten in there, I would have been like, well, that's just the Golden Globes being the Golden Globes. But you you don't need, you don't need to nominate them and the two shows in a universe in which there are a lot of great shows, which as always didn't get recognized. And the funny thing is, of course, that Ratchet took a place that I had already set aside in my mind for a not entirely deserving Netflix show. In my mind, that was the Bridgerton slot completely. And if Bridgerton had been nominated there, my reaction would have been, okay, that's silly. 
but I understand it because I understand that the Golden Globes like to be relevant. They like to be the first ones to coronate something. And hey, they are the first ones to coronate Ratchet and uh, Emily in Paris. They just happen to probably be the last ones. But with Bridgerton, instead, they allowed the Screen Actors Guild to get there ahead of them. And the Screen Actors Guild gave Bridgerton an ensemble nomination and nominated leading man uh, Régis Jean Page, um, whose name I'm sure I'm brutalizing, and my apologies. Uh, and like, I can understand that. It's a, it's a really good ensemble. It, it just is. And if it had been nominated for drama series at the Globes, I would have gone, okay, sure, it's a popular show with attractive young people. And hey, Good that they did that. Why the hell not? Ratchet is just so absurd that it was there. I, you know, it, it, and for heaven's sakes, it would have served the same place of Netflix power producer show, except that Bridgerton has continued to be in the conversation for a solid month and a bit after its premiere. You know, there. As we keep talking about, there are people making a musical of it. There are people getting excited about season two. People are reading the books in larger and larger numbers. It is a phenomenon. I don't question that. Ratchet was not a phenomenon. I don't know how many people watched it. Whatever. I haven't heard a human being in the wild, and by in the wild, I really just mean on Twitter, talking talking, talking about Ratchet for, for four months. Because, gracious, there, there would be no reason to i think i think it was like a week of maybe some stories on various websites and some chatter on, on social but then it just like some other netflix originals it just disappeared which is the problem with with when you release all the episodes all at once and, and a solid 90 percent of the reactions i saw were what the bleep is this uh did anyone actually watch one flew over the cuckoo's nest etc cetera, etc cetera. why did he just decide to remake american horror story asylum etc cetera, etc cetera. um yeah just just Strange. And even, you know, even if you're nominating a a freaking Ryan Murphy thing, I, I would say that since the politician was nominated for a couple things in its first season, it makes more sense. And Hollywood would honestly make more sense. What with the whole they like Hollywood thing. Instead, that only got one nomination for Jim Parsons, who I thought was good on that show, but to me was far from my favorite performance in the show. So yeah, baffling. And then and then that all kind of transitions into a, there is more inclusive and diverse television than ever before. And so when you honor something like a Ratchet or an Emily in Paris and you're leaving great shows with black and multicultural leads on the shelf unrecognized, then it becomes a bad thing. So honoring Bridgerton, you're honoring a certain amount of diversity and inclusivity because it's this wonderful multicultural world that uh, Shonda Rhimes and her team put together. Uh, so, so yeah, you 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 lose that, and then that just makes it even more in in relief when the Golden Globes completely and totally ignore do not acknowledge the existence of snub, whatever you want to say, uh, Michaela Cole and uh, I must, I may destroy you, which was my number one show of 2020 and was many other critics' number one show of the year. And it was, um, you know, it would have gone in the category of uh, limited series or movie because, you know, it's, it's not technically an ongoing series. It hasn't been renewed. There are no plans for a second season, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where it would have gone. And in that category, you know, it becomes HBO cannibalizing itself because there are so many nominations for, uh, you know, freaking The Undoing, uh, which had the advantage of being somewhat popular, but is also a, a 
bad television show. Um, and a bad television show that left people annoyed and frustrated by the end. And so, you know, could, could they have just not given Nicole Kidman a nomination so that Michaela Cole could have gotten some recognition? Well, yes, but that wouldn't be the way that the Hollywood Foreign Press rules. So yeah, so the, the, the sheer number of people who got left out who just coincidentally happened to be uh, minorities of different kinds, it's it's large. And so Lovecraft Country got a drama series nomination. And, you know, that's a show I ended up a little bit more mixed on than I did when it premiered, when I, I really loved the first five episodes, then it was a little hit and miss from there. But, you know, the fact that we've now had multiple awards groups that haven't given Journey Smollett any recognition, that annoys me, that, that perplexes me. I think she is good enough. And so very obviously Sarah Paulson, probably gets that nomination. Uh, Jodie Comer as well. The last season of Killing Eve was uh, not a disaster, but definitely off the rails to some degree. I, you know, I think there are a lot of different people you could have brought in there. So, but let's, let's look at a couple things that are positive. Um, Ted Lasso now getting recognition everywhere and getting recognition for, for both the series and for Jason Sudeikis. That's good. That makes me happy. I can be pleased with that. And Kaylee Cuoco, the same. Her first, you know, she's had a long career in television and has never gotten any awards recognition for 12 years of Big Bang Theory, where she was a standout, nominated for the first time for The Flight Attendant, which also got a series nomination. Yes, which where it's being treated as a comedy, which I can sort of accept and acknowledge. I would I would say that probably the first half of the series was more weighted towards the comedic. The second half of the series really wasn't a comedy at all, but it's probably much more appropriate to have it going in that category than to go against The Crown. On the other hand, was was Ratchet a drama? Was it supposed to be? I, I don't even, honestly, I don't even know. Like, if you were to tell me that Ryan Murphy saw Ratchet as being a dark comedy kind of a parody of stuff, um, I would believe that as much as anything. So, yes, definitely happy for for THR end of the year podcast guest uh, Kaylee Cuoco. Um, and super producer in the making, Kaylee Cuoco. And and people will uh, remember that last year's end of the year uh, podcast guest uh, Rami Youssef, who was nominated this year, was also nominated last year. So for you know for future reference publicists, uh, we we got, we got a pretty good uh, track record with that with that particular. Uh, slot a pretty good track record overall look at all of the shows the that we've had showrunners on and and the the vast majority of them all get renewed if they are renewable properties it is true we like talking about us um <laughs> and, and how important we are to this darn process uh you know lots of other good things very happy with jane levy getting nominated for zoe's extraordinary playlist she's she's been ignored by too many other groups she she didn't get a sag nomination the day after the Golden Globe. So I'm, gl I'm glad to see her getting recognition. It, you know, the, the, the joke always is, and it's accurate, so it's not really a joke, that the HFPA does love kind of recognizing up-and-coming ingenues of certain types, of certain levels of experience. And so if you look in the actress in a comedy category where you've got Jane Levy, Elle Fanning, Kaylee Cuoco, and Lily Collins, you, you see that. And then you go, hmm, somebody like Michaela Cole, who created her own series, starred in it, and got the best reviews of any person in all of television last year. What's the difference between that person and uh, and those very nice, um, fairly 
white young women. Um, and I can't begin to think of what the difference might be. Uh, honestly, it, you know, if I if I want to get away from the oh, the HFPA is racist, because, you know, I'm sure they don't want to be thought of that way. Let's just say that I Must Destroy You is a tonally complicated show and they weren't smart enough to understand it. How about that? Uh, so they, they, can, they can take their pick on which of those two things seems like uh, a thing that they'd rather be associated with. Anyway, and then, yeah, yeah, and then you've got the SAG Awards, which, you know, they, obviously they righted some of the mistakes that the, that the HFPA made, but then there's still all white actresses from two Netflix shows for, for drama actress. Like, how does that even happen? Well, it happens because the the SAG voters have that weird system where they combine comedy and drama, both supporting and lead categories, and they just do one group of five nominees for drama actor and drama actress, or um, female actor, male actor, as they do it at SAG. And so you end up in that circumstance with a situation in which, because there's no blurring, you end up with... Yeah, you, you you end up with categories in which there are only two shows recognized, where it's The Crown and Ozark, and that's it. And we are in such a spectacular moment of acting opportunities for actresses in TV dramas that it is, it's just hugely disappointing to, to see that because of the way SAG has it set up. And also, like, would it kill them to go to six nominees? <laughs> you know, like, there, there's one more person who gets in, and I don't think there was a, a one more person from The Crown or Ozark who would have been nominated, so then you can fit somebody else in. Um, yeah, that's... It, it's, it's a problem with the way that they structure it, unfortunately. And so, and so yeah, they, they made some misses. On the other hand, the Screen Actors Guild voters did nominate Michaela Cole, so I can at least be happy with that. Uh, you know, they, they sort of, they went down a kind of juggernauty road here. And so, like I said, all the actresses for female actor in a drama series were from two shows. Uh, for comedy series, three shows, because Schitt's Creek, Dead to Me, and then Kaylee Cuoco. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a problem with the structure in that case. And so... It's too bad. I'm happy to see uh, Rami now getting nominations from everybody in this category because you you never know when. Um, I don't know. I spent an entire year telling everyone to watch Rami. You might have heard me do it. Um, and you might have heard me stall you for a year and then finally say you were right. But, but like and so maybe I haven't been as persistent with season two, which was also a very good season of TV. I, I didn't like it quite as much as the first season, but it's a really, really good season of TV. And, and I think he uh, continued to improve as an actor, which is not really his, his first job per se. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad to see him continuing to be there. Um, it, you know, there, there are some good performances being recognized by SAG and then some large absences and, you know, so, so again, can accentuate the positive things. I'm I'm happy with all the recognition for Queen's Gambit, which I never was going to be surprised by. It, you know, it's another one of those things that uh, that actually really was a cultural sensation, and so no surprise to see Anya Taylor Joy there. Um, and Anya Taylor Joy actually got two nominations from the Globes because she was nominated for Emma. Uh, somewhat amusing, the SAG voters deciding to put Bill Camp in the 
movie or limited series category on the basis of the one episode of Queen's Gambit that he was in. Uh, it doesn't seem as if he was doing exactly the same thing in that series as, say, Mark Ruffalo was doing in I Know This Much Is True, where he plays two roles in every episode. But he's Bill Camp. So not going to feel bad about Bill Camp getting recognition. And once again, just everyone's got to give the undoing all the recognition they possibly can, because heaven knows, you know, the, the frocks were great. Yeah. So, OK, you've got three different groups of noms this, that came in this week, including WGA. Of everything that you've read, like what really makes you excited that, at the prospect of, of someone winning? Like, is there someone that you're rooting for that you want to see win, whether it's a show or an actor or um, a writer? I I thought the if you go and look at the WGA nominations, they're really good, and it's and it's not a huge surprise that writers perhaps maybe pay more attention to TV and watch more of it than the actors and certainly the Hollywood Foreign Press. Uh, so the, the the WGA nominees, there are a bunch of things that I'm really kind of happy to see pop up. Like I was happy for heaven's sakes to see uh, Jesus and Mero pop up in the in the WGA field because. Uh, we like those guys, and I love that show, and I think it's a smart, good show. Good to see it getting some recognition, and that's such a tough field to break into. I was happy, again, with the WGA with all of the recognition for Better Call Saul. Better Call Saul only got nomination for Bob Odenkirk from the Globes. It did a little bit better with SAG, where it was Odenkirk and the ensemble, uh, but I think it got three individual episode uh, nominations from Writers Guild, and completely and totally deserved every single one of them and could have gotten one or two more. Uh, so yeah, I, I don't know that I have a single thing I'm, I'm excited about. I, I think there are particularly on that list, a bunch of under recognized things that are actually having the chance to get recognized on the globes list. It's, it's a lot harder there. There, you know, look, there, there are good nominations here. I'm not going to say it's an entirely a disastrous list. It's just a, a messy Hollywood foreign pressy kind of list. Yeah, and speaking of that, the 78th annual Golden Globes will be remotely hosted by Amy Poehler and Tina Fey. So I'm going to file that under good news. So it will be interesting to see how they handle that, given that one of them will be on the East Coast and one of them will be on the West Coast. Um, one of the things we got we got asked about on Twitter was how the pandemic impacted all of these nominations, and I'm not sure I have a clear feeling because. The way I would have thought it would have impacted it would be everything would have had a better chance of getting watched and it would have maybe had a more representative and high quality field. But I don't know that necessarily I feel as if that was the case. I think there's definitely there were there were fewer promotional events. And so it caused it caused all of the people who, uh, you know, whose job it is to organize these things to have to do their jobs in different ways but yeah i mean look the hfpa is notorious for loving a good schmooze fest so you go to you know these in-person q a's that they used to have afterwards there's always a reception all the talent comes out and poses for a, a number of pictures you know that's common or it used to be common so how much you know of that stuff turned into virtual events how many of their membership actually tuned into those? Does it have the same weight? You know, it, it, it's a great question that I don't know that anyone has the answer to, but, you know, people are, are stuck at home 
And if what whatever they're watching, what what they're not remembering, I I don't know. But it, it it's super interesting to see because you also have to imagine that the eligibility window is a little different. So you may may not have had shows that would have typically premiered because of the production delays. So No Handmaid's Tale, for example, that I think obviously that was delayed by the production uh, by by COVID. So yeah, the the ways in which the pandemic affected eligibility and marketing and promotion definitely an impact, but hard to measure. And, and, you know, you look at the services that did well here, and, and I think particularly when it comes to streaming and HBO and Showtime, all of the entities can find things to be excited about. If you're, you know, if you're Amazon, you got Al Pacino, a nomination for Hunters. I mean, come on. You, you know, you got, you got a handful of really good nominations to be happy with. If you're Netflix, obviously you, you kind of almost had to pick and choose all of the things that you, you got. Hulu has a bunch of good nominations. Uh, you know, a lot of people have things to Disney plus has, has the Mandalorian Apple TV plus got in, uh, Ted, Ted Lasso. Lasso. So there's a lot of participation coming from all sorts of corners, provided that you pretend that network TV mostly doesn't exist. And that's just where, I mean, honestly, is it just Jane Levy? Is that is that it for the entire TV field from the broadcast networks? Maybe I'm maybe I'm forgetting. I'm sure I'm forgetting something. And then a but lot would of it be, Dan, are you really forgetting something? Oh, no, no. It's, well, I mean, it's the question. Like someone like, um, you know, the, I mean, the blackish people have done well with the right. uh, with the Globes. You know, I feel like Tracy Ellis Ross even won one year. Um, and so th there's there's some, but it's it's not. But just your struggles to remember what the, the standouts are. It, it illustrates how how viewing ha patterns have shifted. Everything is streaming. You know, the, the delays from the pandemic um, for getting these new and returning shows on broadcast television definitely helped drive people to streaming if they weren't already subscribers. Yeah, I think I think there's no question with that. But then, yeah, so not like but it's not like HBO didn't do well. So the cable things still, you know, premium cable still does well. And FX has always had a little bit more difficulty with the with the Globes for some reason. Uh, it's just not so much where they necessarily shine. And so something like, uh, you know, Better Things or something, which is a show that I will always be unhappy is snubbed in cases like this. Um, it, but it it's always been snubbed by the Globe voters. So, so you can't be unhappy with it. You can't be unhappy when... Better Call Saul, which has never gotten a series nomination from the HFPA when it just gets the Bob Odenkirk nomination. You know, it's, it was just never going to happen. It was there was there was no reasonable reason to think that that was ever going to occur. So you can't be hugely disappointed with it. And yet still a little disappointed, disappointed someone like Chris Rock from the most recent season of Fargo couldn't break into the actor in a miniseries category. But, you know, that these are these are complicated things and the HFPA, they're complicated people. Or maybe they're not complicated. Maybe they're just different, to, difficult to understand. Those are two different things, uh, complicated and weird and confusing. They're definitely the latter. Whether they're the former or not, I don't know. Number two. Up next this week, the biggest TV viewing day of the year has arrived. On Sunday, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Bucks face off with Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs in the Super Bowl. CBS airs the game this year with kickoff starting at 3.30 p.m. Pacific. And, of course, the network will use the big Super Bowl to launch its Queen Latifah-led reboot of The Equalizer. So we know for a fact going in that there's going to be fewer ads from movie studios because of the pandemic and the uncertain nature of theatrical releases. 
but we can we know for sure we're going to probably get some more ads for Paramount Plus, which is rebranding in March. But there's a lot going on and a lot that goes into programming for the post-game slot. So joining us this week is friend of the five and former Fox and NBC scheduler turned analyst Preston Beckman. Preston, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. So I guess the first question is, you've been in that room. How complicated is the decision to choose what the show is that airs after the Super Bowl? How often is it a no-brainer, and how often does it actually require months and months of discussion and conversations? Well, I, I can only speak to how we did it. Um, I think it, it's different at the different networks. For us, we, uh, both at NBC and at Fox, would try, if we knew we were going to have the Super Bowl, we would try to figure out which show we wanted to put behind the Super Bowl because my philosophy was not to use the game to launch something, but rather to make money. And the way you made money was to get one of your shows to agree to do an episode, a special episode, following the game prior to the upfront in which we sell advertising in May so that we could go to New York in May, announce that we have the Super Bowl and here's what's going to follow the game. And then it was as close as you could get to putting a gun to the advertiser's head. <laughs> and literally, they would walk out and find the sales executives and tell them that they wanted to be in the game. That's how we did it. So uh, we would generally sit around, usually right after the prior Super Bowl, and say, who do we want to put in it? And um, because we wanted to make sure they had all the time they needed to do the episode that we wanted them to do. I mean, it started as, uh, I think last week, there was something in The Hollywood Reporter about Friends. My former boss, Warren Littlefield, and I could differ a little bit about how it happened. But what I think we agree on is uh, we uh, saw what ABC had done. The pro they, ABC had the Super Bowl. They put a show called Emergency after it. Because for quite a while, the networks were airing pilots. And after it aired, after the Super Bowl, it immediately collapsed when it was put <laughs> in its real-time period. We used to have a daily meeting, and at the meeting, I said, you know, when are the networks gonna, going to realize that when a show sucks putting it after the Super Bowl, you're just telling everybody it sucks quickly, as opposed to <laughs> letting, letting them find out in, in their own time period. So I said, why don't we do something different? Why don't we... Uh, go to one of our big shows, get them to agree, and be ready to announce it in the upfront. We originally went to Seinfeld, to be, to be perfectly honest. And not surprisingly, and we knew it, uh, Jerry and Larry David turned us down because they just didn't do things like that. And um, after that, we, we went to Friends, and um, they agreed and delivered an amazing hour of television. That's right. The, the one that aired after the Super Bowl, it celebrates its 25th anniversary this year. And for non-Friends diehards, which do we have people who aren't diehards friends of that uh, fans of that show? That's is the one with, with Julia Roberts and Jean-Claude Van Damme and Brooke Shields and the return of, of Marcel, of course. That was the, so. big, that was the big get. 
<laughs> of course. Yeah. No, we were really excited. We, we featured that in the promos. Because <laughs> for fans of Friends, that was really the big one. But yeah, and that, and that episode still remains the highest rated program to air after the Super Bowl, even still 25 years later. And now we've seen other shows that have aired in, you know, af in that yes. slot. Yes. The Office aired after their Glee did a Super Bowl episode once. And I, you know, House, more recently, House, yeah, House it, um, 24 tried to launch the 20 or Fox tried to launch that 24 reboot that did so well immediately after. And then, as you said, cratered in the subsequent weeks. But, you know, Third Rock from the Sun. So we yeah, did. Exactly. There were, there were, it became the way to do it, which was actually the Friends was so successful that I suggested that the following year, even though we didn't have the Super Bowl, <laughs> that we kind of did like an in living color thing and that we would put a show on immediately after the game. Because the, one of the big problems or issues is you have to trek from the end of the game through the post-game show. And depending on the cooperation of the sports people, which sometimes was not the best, especially at Fox. Um, you uh, would have to get through that to get to the show that you were putting on. What was amazing about Friends was the demos for the post-game show were huge. And the, the, 18 to 40, the, the 18 to 49 audience, which would generally probably just bail as soon as the game was over, stayed and therefore we wound up with some ridiculous rate i think like a 45 share for and i can't remember if it was homes or 1849 for the game for the um for the friends episode that was amazing yeah so you know now you're seeing a show like the equalizer which is obviously you know a reboot of the denzel washington movie and which is was a reboot of the original series and it's got a big star like queen latifah in it so does it make sense from from your point of view? Does it make sense to launch in this fragmented era to launch a new show with a big name, even if it's a reboot and has a big star like Queen Latifah attached to it? Well, I haven't seen it, so I'm not going to say it sucks. <laughs> uh, but um, two things. But One, like, but like CBS has NCIS and all these beloved shows. You know, I think the last time they they had some like James Corden unscripted show that was canceled after one season. But like, if you're CBS, if you're working and scheduling and working with that network. What would would you have recommended a new show like this one, even if even if it is based on IP and, and has a marketable star attached, or would you have gone with one of their tried and true franchises? Well, with all due respect to my friend Kelly Cole, the CBS of all the networks has never seemed to embrace the notion of I want to make a lot of money in the up, uh, in the upfront by announcing a successful show, uh, existing successful show. They've uh, more they more than any other network has generally tried to launch stuff after the Super Bowl. My opinion, the Equalizer is going to do what it's going to do when it moves into its time period. And for whatever reason, they've never taken the approach of, as you say, they could have done a cross. They could have done an NCIS crossover. Where are there three of them on the air now still, I think? They could have done, you know, some kind of big crossover stunt or something. Like if, if NBC had, uh, uh, yeah, they, can, they have the Super Bowl sometimes when they could do a Chicago, a Chicago crossover. I mean, it's really, to me, it's about showmanship. 
And, you know, it's not about trying to expose the audience to, to something new. I think that if you put in the effort and tell the advertisers, because that's what it's all about, really. If you tell the advertisers, we're going to do something special after the Super Bowl, they'll say, I'm in. Uh, but, but again, that's the, would I have done the equalizer? No, um, but, but I, have, I respect how they approach things. They're, they're still the most old school network. <laughs> <laughs> I say that with love and respect. I want to I want to go back to the the friends and Seinfeld of it all. When you make the call to Larry David to Jerry Seinfeld, but then also to the friends people, is it just as simple as we have this slot? Would you be willing to do something special for it, or do you say that certain things would sort of make it special? Do you say we need a big A list guest star and the monkey? Do you say something like that or not? Uh, well, uh, first of all, I didn't make the call. My boss, Warren Littlefield, made the sure. call. Uh, I'm not that powerful, or it wasn't <laughs> that powerful. Uh, I think I think if you're going to Seinfeld or if you're going to Friends, you're going out of respect. And you don't go to them and then tell them what to do. I think it was as simple as Warren picking up a phone and calling Kaufman, Brighton, Crane, or some combination of them, and saying, we want to offer you the time after the Super Bowl. Would you be interested? And um, they probably, they very quickly said yes, and they rolled up their sleeves and went to work. And I honestly um, do not think that the NBC program executives on the show or executive on the show did anything other than sit in a current meeting and take credit for how great the episode was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have a there is a great oral history about the Friends Super mm-hmm. Bowl episode, including how it landed on the air over on THR.com if you're interested in reading. See, it. I gave you that opportunity for a free sp- a promo. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Pre- Preston, while we have you, you know, we did have some sad news this week with the passing of Jamie Tarses, your former colleague. You know, do you have a great story that stands out about your time working with her? Well, it was it was really sad. And um, I think for any, if I can just say this, for any executive being that young and being asked to do what she was asked to do is a really, really, really difficult position to be in. Given that in this business, a lot of the people that wind up in those jobs are really developers. And you're suddenly asked to deal with your salespeople, deal with your finance people, deal with business affairs, deal with your affiliates. And regardless of one's gender, that's, uh, that's a very difficult position to be in. And then when you're, you were put in her position of going over to a network without any support, without any uh, allies, um, and given the uh, focus on her, that was just awful. Uh, I enjoyed working with her. Uh, the once I'll tell you the friend story, which I, I mentioned um, on my blog, uh, uh, we were at a point where we were trying to get rid of the music before the shows started. And uh, she and Jamie and Carrie Burke, who's now over at whatever that thing is, over at Disney, Fox, whatever, decided uh, they came into my office one day and played uh, the, the theme song from Friends. 
and said, asked me if I would go up to see Don Allmeyer, who was president of West Coast, because they didn't think, since we were making such a big deal about not doing that, they didn't think Don would cooperate, and they thought maybe if I helped them, he would. So we went up there, and Don, fortunately, was in a good mood. We played the song, and Don said, do you guys want it? And we went, yeah, we think it's good. And he said, okay. Uh, so they were very, they were very happy to have somebody who Don kind of wouldn't bark at, like going up there with them. Um, but she was, uh, she was a very talented person, and um, I feel terrible for, you know, I mean, we're at the point now. Rick Ledwin passed a little while ago, and you know, we're at that point of our lives, and uh, just have to appreciate uh, what we accomplished in the business. Well said, well said. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week, Preston. Thank you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Number three. Up third, as we just discussed with Preston Beckman, the TV industry lost another icon this week with the passing of Jamie Tarsus. Jamie battled sexism after she became the first woman to head a broadcast network when she was hired away from NBC in 1996 to run ABC. She was also the second youngest person to ever serve as an entertainment president when she got the job at the age of 32. During her career as an executive, she developed shows including Friends, Mad About You, Frasier, The Practice, Sports Night, and Dharma and Greg. Later, as a producer, her credits included favorites like Franklin and Bash, Happy Endings, and more recently, Amazon's renewed drama The Wilds, and the upcoming Disney Plus series The Mysterious Benedict Society. Joining us to pay tribute to Tarsus is Entertainment Weekly Editor-at-Large, Lynette Rice, who covered Tarsus when she was a reporter during her time at Broadcasting and Cable and later for The Hollywood Reporter. Thanks for joining us, Lynette. My pleasure. So just getting started, you know, Jamie was before my tenure as a reporter and a copy editor with THR, but from your time covering her, what kind of, well, first of all, let's just start there. What was it like to cover her when she got this job or even you know, the, the process leading up to it as when she was an exec at NBC. Well, first of all, I appreciate you just pointing out right there that you're younger than me, so you don't remember her. So that's always a good start. <laughs> uh, what was it like? My God, those, uh, for those dinosaurs like myself and a few of us left still covering television, those were really heady days uh, when we would, would cover the broadcast networks because they were still the big game in town. You know, we're, we're contending with a bazillion uh, uh, networks that we are now. So when we went to the Television Critics Association events, it was a big deal. We all literally wore suits. We don't. We didn't wear the the jeans and t shirts we do now. We everyone looks so dumpy at them now. But back in the day, we were very formal. We we took it really seriously. And when the executives were up on stage, uh, it was standing room only in those rooms, especially when Jamie would be on stage. Uh, everyone wanted to be at those press conferences because we knew there would be news. But for her, when she was promoted to entertainment chairman at ABC, first of all, how fraught was that? Like, 
you know, and, and we're talking 25 years ago now, and this it took that long for a woman to lead a broadcast network. Was What was the, the announcement like at the time? What, were people stunned that it was a woman, let alone a woman so young? Like, what was the, the industry reaction to her hiring at ABC? Well, it was mired in such intrigue because first she had to be wrestled away from NBC. And at that point, her contract wasn't up yet. And she was already kind of the little, you know, young Turk wonderkin under uh, Brandon Tartikoff. And so no one really wanted to lose her because like you just listed, she was developing some pretty cool shows. But Ovitz was involved at the time because, you know, Ovitz... Uh, you know, being Ovitz. And there, a story emerged that somehow Jamie wanted out because she was on the cusp of uh, wanting to report how Don Olmeyer, then chairman, um, harassed her in some way. Uh, both Olmeyer and Jamie came out and said, that's not true, but that story lived on. And ultimately, only uh, made Jamie suffer. It didn't, you know, come back against Ovitz, who was v- suspected of starting such a bad rumor. And it certainly didn't go against Olmeyer, who lived, you know, forever at that job. It just ended up hurting Jamie. Uh, regardless, she got out, but and she got this job, but that only put more white-hot attention on her when she started at ABC. That coupled with the fact you have this, again, a young Turk. It's always great to have somebody young and ambitious in a new position. She's also gorgeous. She also comes from Hollywood royalty. She was the the daughter of Jay Tarsis, who was a TV uh, writer, a successful one in his own right. So there's already a lot of attention on her to succeed. But mostly it was over the fact that she was young and she was beautiful. And, of course, she was a woman. Well, you you talked about how back in the day, members of the TCA used to dress up more for press conferences. But I would also add that uh, that while the organization has more of a gender split today, it didn't used to. And uh, I definitely feel as if there was an old guard of critics slash TV reporters who were primarily men and men who had been doing the job for a long time. What sense were you able to get of how people on the press side of things were responding to her and whether it felt like it was they were responding to her the same way they were responding to any new broadcast chief or that it felt like a totally different thing. Well, if I think back, yes, there were um, there weren't as many women at the major publications like that's when Bill Carter was at the New York Times. Uh, the the major critics at some of the major newspapers were all you know white men. Um, definitely at the L.A. Times, even at the trades, there was mostly men. There was just uh, Jenny um, uh, Jenny Hans and myself were at. She was at Variety. I was at the Hollywood Reporter, and so we were both the women who covered her. But I, you're right. I don't remember a lot of other women covering her. So these were guys, and they were all not very close to Jamie's age. I mean, we were all close to Jamie's age at that time. We were all in our 30s. We were all covering uh, Jamie. And you're right. There was def- definitely more of a male tilt in that room. And you, there's definitely, I mean, it's even worse now when you, you're in that room uh, and you hear this the skepticism from everybody. But she she got her share of hard questions. Uh, um, and I think probably more so because she was young and this was a huge step for her to take over this role. You know, it's the youth that sort of, that sort of gets to me when I'm reading all the stories of when she started her tenure, because, um, you know, thankfully there has been more 
you know, there have been many more women who have both held that particular job, but also comparable jobs at other networks. So things are getting better, thankfully. But I mean, I feel like even today, a 32 or a 33 year old person going into that job really would raise eyebrows. Uh, like even today, you would go, wow, how on earth did that person get that job at that age? They must be brilliant, etc. Um, what what feeling did you get coming off of her based on her youth? Because that that's just so remarkable to me that she got that job at that point. I think at that point, okay, so at that point, you know, we were used to, look at who we were covering at the time. So there was Warren Littlefield at NBC and, of course, Don Olmeyer. You know, Harbert was at ABC as well. So we were used to men. We were used to older men in those positions. Um, and we held on to their every word, too. I mean, when they did TCA, they held court. And uh, and we we loved covering them. They were always such great you know, quotes, they didn't give a crap, you know, and they just spoke from the hip. Don Olmeyer, especially, he was just so lovely and delicious because now, you know, most people that have grew up there, they come from a marketing background and, the, and their point of view is so much different. Yeah, so, or, or yes. they speak in canned quotes that are all carefully curated with, with a publicist beforehand. Correct. The Back in the day, those men didn't care. And once both Warren and, the, I mean, Warren was a little more guarded than Don Olmeyer, but when Les Moonves and Ted Harbour took the stage, I mean, it was just great fun. And when they left, it was like the, the changing of the guard. So when you see somebody like Jamie, who's not schooled in that way, and she just simply doesn't have the confidence to speak at that level, um, we worry about that. I, I personally, from my point of view, um, I was focused more, I mean, I, I remember being definitely in awe of her because she's like, oh my God, this gal's got it all. She's got it all going on. But you couldn't help but stumble on her youth uh, and how young she was. And you can, you, you, it really spoke to how desperate, desperate in that the network ABC was trying to win, you know, and you're, you're constantly looking for who's going to be the next hit maker. Um, Cause you know, if you keep in mind when Brandon Tartikoff was hired, he was actually, he holds the record as being the youngest president. He was hired at 31 and that was a huge deal. And so there, the thought was, yes, of course, this young woman, um, if Brandon can do it, so can Jamie. And and Jamie did have talent. She continues to be beloved. She continued to be beloved among writers because she just kind of, you know, walked the talk with them. I mean, she was raised by a writer, so she knew how to communicate with them. And that's the kind of network president you really want, somebody who appreciates the writers because they're the ones that are they're, um, really in the trenches doing the hard work. So it really speaks to the desperation of like, God, we've got to find the next it person, the next big person to take this job. So you can see why she was so seductive um, to hire. I mean, if NBC thought she was, you know, hot shit, then maybe ABC should go with her as well. You know, look, looking back, she's a trailblazer, obviously the first woman to lead a broadcast network. She paved the way for people like Carrie Burke who and, and Channing Dungy, both former ABC Entertainment presidents. You know, Nina Tassler obviously ran CBS for a long time, too. But do you think, you know, looking back now, the way that that the press, the media, her her colleagues, do you think that that she was treated fairly 
Or was she, you know, like I, I read the New York Times feature about her from way back in the day, and it was just, it was an incredibly sexist story with, with sexist quotes from agents and executives. And the story was written by a woman. By a woman, by Lynn Hirschberg. She was older uh, at the time than Jamie. Um, and um, it was an 8,000-word profile. And normally profiles, stories about, you know, executives don't always stand out. But this one really dogged her for the rest of her career. I mean, it just changed things. Um, I mean, to have that kind of impact as a journalist, by the way, I don't know if I'd ever want that constantly following me, but that that story singularly um, impacted her career in such a negative way. And, um, and I, I remember when it came out and we were just all, we were gobsmacked. One, we were gobsmacked at how it's how mean it seemed, but also we were gobsmacked too about some of the behavior that Jamie displayed. But at the same time, this is a young woman being a young woman. I mean, I think about at the beginning of my career covering television, some of the stupid ass questions that I used to ask of studios and networks about how the business works. I'm so grateful there were people who would take the time to explain it to me, but I sounded like an idiot. You know, and, and, and so, but she had to do it in front of so many people. So absolutely she was treated unfairly. The world is different now. Um, it is a better time to, um, you know, to be a female in a high position. But I mean, she was a trailblazer and I, I, I wouldn't have wished that on anyone, what she went through. And I, and I'm, and by the time that she did leave, I think she was so relieved. Uh, you know, it's funny. I, the one, I, I don't remember what it was, but I remember one TCA where something bad happened on on the the network. I, I, they must have had really crappy ratings, or somebody left, or something. But when she came out on stage, the they that's back in the day where they used to play really fun music to introduce the network presidents. Now they don't do it anymore. And at that point, she came out to this the the Chumbawamba song. I get back up. I get knocked down. Tub thumping, yeah. And the crowd freaking roared. They just roared. And um, she was, they were admitting a mistake. And she and she agreed to be part of the joke. And everyone freaking loved it. Um, but the fact that she that was her walkout music, my God. <laughs> it was an incredible time. And the other thing I remember too, and um is that when, you know, after the, you know, we do, we still do this today at, at TCA when a, a, a network executive comes off the stage and we all, you know, surround them to, you know, pummel them with questions. But her scrum was always so huge. And, um, um, and it was, and she would just try, she, she would do it. She'd have to answer the questions, but then she would try to get away. And like one of my, our colleagues, Joe Adalian, would like be literally running after her in the lobby of the Four Seasons Hotel, the Ritz-Carlton, excuse me. Um, and he would, the poor guy would huff and puff because she moved like a gazelle. And he would be sweating and yelling at her, would you please slow down? I need to talk to you. And she was having none of it, none of it. It was great. <laughs> Joe, who of course people will remember from our podcast last week. And right. yes, the the story of the stories of Joe Adalian chasing down Jamie Tarsus are still legendary. Legend. So. Just good stuff. Good <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I, I, but that's how valuable those quotes were. You wanted it from her. Yeah. And that was back in the day, A, when TCA was in person, and B, when executives would do TCA panels. Well, yes. What, yes. How, you know, since the pandemic, what have there been like maybe two? 
panels with executives, maybe. And I really wonder, once we do come back, are, are they going to come back, you know, I, full? They're, they're, the ones who, they're the ones who like the exposure. John Landgraf will always meet with the press. You, you do not need to worry about that. And so bless him for that. But we'll see, you know, not everyone, not everyone values the relationship with the press in the same way. <laughs> You know, ultimately what this is about too, um, you know, Jamie, if if life is going to hand you the brass ring, you're stupid not to take it. You know, of course she's going to take the opportunity and who, no one can blame her. The problem was she was set up for failure. She had no support system at the network. The Her, her higher ups put her in a position that was untenable and no one was there to help her out. She even she had no mentors at the network to help her. What other women were there in the community, you know, um, giving her the support that she needed? I, I, she was probably very much alone, which is just too bad. Yeah, and, and now you look at the executive structure and you see people like Frances Berwick and Dana Walden and Susan Rovner and Channing Dungy and Bella at Netflix and just, you know, Carrie Burke has ascended. Now she's over, overseeing 20 at the studio and, you know, these are people who owe a, at least some debt of gratitude to to Jamie Tarsus, who knocked down and broke through that glass ceiling and paid Perfect. for it severely. Correct. Absolutely. I mean, is there a lesson in this? Do you not promote young people? Not necessarily. I mean, sometimes they're still, you know, very ambitious, you know, very talented folks. But you just got to make sure if you're going to, if you're, you just got to be there for them. Don't just hang her out to dry. Don't hang her out to dry. Yeah. And that's also why a lot of these execs get media training and management coaching now when before, I don't think any of that stuff was going on. No. I mean, you would know better than I would. Right. We know that they coach people even before the TCA panels, which oh, yeah. is absurd. How many times have we been called by publicists? Like, well, how, what shall I coach them on? You know, yeah. and then what, we're are, what do you the think publicists. they're going to get asked? Yeah. <laughs> which is like, incredible. They never did that back in the day. Yeah, I'm like, well, you're going to get asked about this controversy and that controversy, and I know you're not going to say anything. You're going to come up with a talking point that is that doesn't say anything, but everyone's going to put in their headline because that's what the story is, but you're not really saying anything. So, yeah, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. So, right. yeah, I, I, I kind of wish that I, I was a reporter back at the time. I think I was in col- I was finishing up college when she was uh, taking over and, and blazing that trail, um, but I do wish that our paths crossed, and I, I regret that, so... Daniel, she's doing it again. She just did it again to remind me how much I am. <laughs> it's not Look, intentional. You're 20 years old. Okay, fine. fine. <laughs> Hardly. Come on. <laughs> I just got a late start. I started as a copy editor. The first decade of my career at The Hollywood Reporter was as a copy editor. So I, I learned from from people like Nellie and Driva and Cynthia Littleton and, and, and yourself. I used to read all of your stuff. So... You know, anyway, Lynette, I'm I'm rambling here, but thank you so much for joining. And you have a, a great announcement that I want to be sure to plug, too. You have some, some news uh, for yourself. Yes. Today, um, I announced that I spent my quarantine uh, doing it, uh, reporting out an oral history of Grey's Anatomy. And it was a, a long road, uh, but it was a fun one. It was really fun to go back and watch old episodes. I mean, I really recommend that for anybody who hasn't watched season one, two, and three, go back. It'll still make you cry. Uh, I revisit that at the beginnings of the show. I even talked to Leslie and other reporters who covered Grey's Anatomy because it was such a heady time and it was so much fun to do it. It was so competitive. Uh, And it comes out in September. I'm super excited. Well, congratulations and thank you for joining us today. Bye now. Thanks, Lynette. Number four. Up next... 
we have an update on Peak TV, courtesy of FX's trusty research department. What did we learn this week, Leslie? Well, we learned that the total number of scripted originals that aired in 2020 was down 7% from 2019's record high. The total number is 493, down from 532, obviously likely the result of the production delays as a result of the pandemic. You know, Dan, my immediate reaction to this was that it took a global pandemic to slow the TV machine. And we're not even thinking about what how this really impacts 2021. Obviously, we had a number of shows that were unrenewed. That's a small number. But you also have two new streaming services that launched in 2020 and that continue to buy. So the bigger question, I think, looking ahead is, will the new ways of production, obviously, we've heard all of our guests talk about how much longer it takes to produce these shows, how much more expensive they are, how some of these networks and streamers are cutting back because shows are either too expensive or too hard to film, like something like Glow, like how are you going to do a, a wrestling show during the age of COVID? You know, I think those are the big questions that I'm concerned and that I'm thinking about, about 2021. Like, will vo will total volume continue to decline? I mean, look, this is the first time that it dipped since FX began measuring this stuff in more than a decade. So you've got multiple streamers now bulking up and, and building out their originals, plus leaning harder into franchise with TV spinoffs. You know, there, there's just so much. But Dan, I, I'm curious for you as a critic, you know, you, you had a little snarky comment like that, you know, uh, when the numbers came out, too. For, as a critic, like, were you surprised to see that it was only down 7%? Yeah, that that's what I was surprised by, is the only 7%. Uh, because th there was indeed a global pandemic that shut down the world for the better part of nine months. Uh, whether production on film and TV shows were back going in, I don't know, in some cases August, in some cases September, in some cases not at all. You know, some cases they might have started at the very end of the window. So the the idea that despite that, the number only went down to 493 is exhausting. It's mind boggling. I think that we're going to see at least for this year, almost certainly that the numbers will either continue to be quote unquote down at this level or will drop a little bit more. I, you know, I think we are I think we are definitely not going to suddenly see the numbers jump back as high as they were this year, just because it's it's not possible. There, there's just no way. Yeah, and don't forget, you know, we talked about this last week on the show, but as we looked at the TV premiere calendar for February, it's slim pickings this month. And that is likely because of the surge that happened at the end of the year around the holidays. And, and a lot of these shows, especially ones that, that film in Los Angeles, slowed production. So you're not going to get as many episodes or new shows started a little bit later. But when you look at the premiere date schedules and you're seeing not a whole lot of stuff coming and, and things are getting delayed till April, what is this, you know, this, this February and March lag? How will that have a larger effect? And if the vaccine rollout doesn't go go well, or if these new strains are more contagious and further delay everything in, you know, it, it's a great question. And I would love, you know, one that I'm very interested in seeing how this all plays out. Obviously, I would love to leave the house like everybody else. But at the same time, the, there are so many more variables that are playing in to how production can actually continue or should it, you know, we talk a lot about on this podcast, should TV consider be considered an essential thing, you know, so Everyone still needs content. And these streaming companies 
all of them are desperate for streaming stuff. Like if you look at it, you know, we go back and, and, and talk about Disney Plus and what their uh, their post Mandalorian launch was, and it was flat. They didn't have enough content. That is a case study in how much these outlets need tentpole programming, whether it's a new original like a flight attendant or a, a franchise spinoff like a Marvel show like WandaVision. You need content. You need these these, you know, per, these TV shows on your schedule. You need a steady flow of content to bring in new subscribers, to keep your bottom line, and you need to keep the wheels running, you know? And, and meanwhile, from a breaking news standpoint, we're busier than ever. You know, I'm talking to a couple of, you know, my fellow reporters, and it's like, yeah, it's definitely busy like it was pre-pandemic with the amount of new shows being announced and castings and pilots. And it, it, it's like we're getting back to normal, but yet it's not even normal. It's the new normal. Yeah, and you think, and you think 2020 will down the 7%, et cetera, et cetera. But a lot of the stuff, certainly through the summer and then the early fall, it was stuff that had been in production or finished production before the shutdown happened. So the slowdown really and truly is what's hitting us now. We're in what is the lull. And we talked about it either last week or the week before. I can no longer keep track of anything. Uh, Time is a flat circle. It is, which it was just that April and May are going to become the new January and February. And February is drier and March is drier. You look at a lot of uh, networks are keeping the lights on with acquisitions and with acquisitions that they're just announcing kind of last minute because it's like, what can we find? When can we put it on? What can we do to keep the lights on? And it's not necessarily the content that in a different world in which everything was at 100%, they would necessarily be acknowledging at all. It would just be kind of library titles that might slip into the streaming service and you'd find it or you wouldn't and who would care. In a lot of cases, things are getting more ambitious rollouts. Uh, you know, I don't know under a different circumstance if uh, Lupin on Netflix would have gotten the attention it did. And, you know, still some people didn't get around to reviewing it initially, and I feel bad about that. And it's just trying to realign everybody's expectations and everybody's <laughs> schedules, you know, how we, how we do the job that we're doing in the quote-unquote new normal, which isn't particularly normal at all and is extra not normal probably this month and next month. Uh, but, you know, I'll say it again, 493 scripted programs is... Uh, that's, that's a, it's still that's, an awful lot. That's a shit ton of TV, and and it's not including... And it's probably not including uh, Quibi. So, um, because those are, you know, just quick bites. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, so it's 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 still exhausting... And it doesn't feel as if there was a huge let up in 2020 and 493 scripted shows sort of confirms that, you know, there, there was really no point at which I, I was twiddling my thumbs looking for things to do in 2020. And this is why. Yeah. And, you know, you did. I want to go back and, and touch on something you mentioned, you know, all these acquisitions that a lot of these networks and streamers are making. And my question, too, is your how many more of these. Uh, foreign language originals streamers are going to pick up. There's a great story on THR.com. A uh, headline is U.S. streamers bulk up with non-English language shows that uh, from our colleague Scott Roxborough. But it's fascinating because all of these streamers, even if they're not internationally distributed yet, and they're still working on, on the international rollout, they are adding and buying in bulk 
a lot of foreign language shows because eventually they are going to be in these markets. So they they need the content. They need to to have a library of offering of whether it's library content or new originals, et cetera. They're bulk they're bulking up, and it's also at the same time they're turning to these global hits to help fuel and you know and, and draw in new subscribers. That whether it's stateside or domestically when or internationally when they do launch abroad. So. Well, at some point, will FX have to count like, well, this is, you know, not produced here. So we're only counting U.S. originals that launched first window on this platform. You know, the count is getting harder and harder to make. And, and you know, to that end, we, we even saw a company today, Legendary TV, it's a big TV studio. They merged their international with their domestic operations under one executive. And that should tell you this is where we are heading. The need for global content is right there with U.S. originals. So... I'll be curious at some point if FX will will measure that too, because if you remember a couple of years ago, they stopped breaking out, which was on broadcast, which was on cable and which was on streaming because it's impossible to delineate anymore. Yeah, definitely the the influx of, of foreign programming and where it's coming and how it's being presented is is a major thing to keep an eye on. I, I continue to think it's all, I think it's great. Anytime someone tells me about the random Spanish show that I've never heard of that they love or, you know, for years, for years, it was kind of the domain of the, the, there were the cultists who would all have their favorite Scandinavian dramas. And those were the things that everyone talked about and they all got remade. And that was the, kind yeah, of, right. What wasn't the ha- killing? The killing was based on the Scandinavian The killing was show, one, right? the bridge, the bridge was one. They tried to remake Borgen, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas I don't know that necessarily it's going to be the same thing anymore. I don't hear people, for example, necessarily, and these could be famous last words, talking about the American remake of Le Pen. Uh, I assume somebody somewhere is having that conversation. How I mean, they someone somewhere it. is definitely having oh, the conversation for, sure. for a U.S. remake of Call Your Agent. Oh, which which is which already existed. It was called Extras. So it, no one no one needs this. But I feel as if there were years and years where foreign language programming was entirely seen as let's have this on in the background and and we'll put it on our service. It will exist, but really let's try to find a way to Americanize it. And I don't know that that's quite what we're doing anymore, which is good. We're kind of letting some of these things stand on their own and saying, look, if you want to watch this high quality programming from this country, watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's right there at your fingertips now. Yeah. Well, definitely something we'll continue to monitor and report on. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Dan, it's a slow week. We got two shows worth promoting here. The Equalizer and Clarice, the Silence of the Lambs follow up, both of them on CBS. Yeah, lots of lots of littler stuff, but because of Sundance reviews and because of trying to basically just keep track of all of the TV that's coming in weeks to come, this is all I can talk about this week. And I've only seen the one episode of The Equalizer, the episode that will be airing after the Super Bowl on Sunday. Um, and the best I can say is that it is a... It is a professionally made CBS procedural with a brand name that happens to have an extremely, extremely good cast. And that is the thing that The Equalizer has going for it. I, I would describe the, the structure slash script of The Equalizer, which was written by Andrew uh, Marlowe and uh, Terry Ida Miller. Um, they are the husband and wife duo behind Castle. They are indeed husband and wife. Uh, I would describe the script and the setup to be 
borderline rudimentary, and I would say it feels like a first draft. That's just me. Um, maybe the development people know that this was actually the 50th draft and this was the best they could come up with. Uh, in terms of the setup for the series, it's not particularly effective. On the other hand, and this is not a little thing, really and truly the cast is is tremendous. Uh, Queen Latifah is, you know, full of swagger, and she does all of that stuff well. The action scenes in the pilot, I would say, are not particularly good. There's a lot of body doubling going on that's, I wouldn't say, hugely effective. And that's, you know, either something that happened on the pilot and that they'll improve at or not. Uh, but just the the entire cast here is is just really good. You have uh, Lorraine Toussaint as uh, Queen Latifah's character's mother. She's fantastic. You have Tori Kittles, who's an actor who really should have gotten a bigger bump than he got out of the first season of True Detective. He plays the cop who kind of butts heads with Queen Latifah's character, but you know that eventually they're going to realize that they're working towards the same justice or some, something like that. Uh, you've got Lisa Lapira, you've got Adam, not the creator of the Goldbergs, Goldberg. Um, <laughs> I, I, I believe they buried the hatchet, right? They're not, they're not feuding right now? I can't remember. That was still one of the most insane stories I've ever written. Uh, definitely a strange no thing. No relation, I should say. Yes, no relation, to be sure, to either Leslie or the other Adam Goldberg. <laughs> uh, you've got Chris Noth. You've got a lot of really good actors here. Uh, Michael Raddy plays the uh, the not-so-good guy in the pilot. I don't think he's going to be around subsequently ever, but, you know, he's recognizable. It, it's, it's just a lot of these people are having a fair amount of fun. The series itself is, like I said, it's, it's borderline generic, and because I haven't seen a second episode, I don't really have a sense of how it's going to work as a weekly show if it's just simply going to be a CBS procedural with a really good cast, in which case I might watch one or two more episodes, or if there's anything arced or mythology-driven going on, unclear. Um, so yeah, that's uh, the equalizer. It's not painful. There there you go. Um, and premiering uh, next week is the Silence of the Lambs sequel, Clarice, on CBS. Uh, you can go back to our interview with Alex Kurtzman, uh, where he talked about the desire to do it both on broadcast, when it was specifically suggested that broadcast might be a home for it, but to attempt to do it kind of as a cable show on broadcast. Uh, I would say it's not exactly that. Uh, the pilot was written by Kurtzman with Jenny Lamette, and... Um, it is very much attempting to follow up on Silence of the Lambs, but with a strange rights-related issue wherein they can't say the name Hannibal Lecter. So that's at least 50% of what follows up on Silence of the Lambs, and you can't do it. You can get one reference to her former psychiatrist who is who was formerly in the Baltimore home for the criminally insane, and that's about as far as they can go. Uh, fortunately, you can just watch Hannibal on Netflix if, you know, you want to see that character. Uh, but there's a lot of talk about Buffalo Bill. There are a lot of carryover characters and references. It's just not necessarily the characters or references you want the show to be making. So um, the Paul Krendler character, who is a complete and total non-factor in the Silence of the Lambs movie, but then was played by Ray Liotta and was a very pivotal question in the Ridley Scott Hannibal movie. He's a key character. He's played by Michael Cudlitz here, and he's basically the head of a violent crimes unit that uh, Senator, former Senator, now Attorney General Ruth Martin, you remember that character from Silence, assigns Clarice to one year after the events of Silence of the Lambs. So there are a lot of 
kind of interesting prickly things about this. So it's about trauma. It's about what Clarice has gone through in the year since her encounter with Buffalo Bill. And, and you kind of have to keep in mind, you have to remember, and it's hard to because the movie feels like so long ago, uh, that the Clarice Starling we meet in that movie is she's rookie. She's she's plucked off the obstacle course at Quantico literally for her first case in this heightened environment. Well, the series finds her back at the behavioral sciences unit where she's basically been tucked away because no one wants her in the field because they worry that she's damaged goods already. And so she's very young, she's very damaged, and she's trying to put her life back together after a traumatic event. And I think that's a very interesting approach. The series approach is a little bit less interesting. She's brought in on a violent crime involving women with a sexual element. It's it's very much of the let's hearken back to Buffalo Bill as much as we possibly can. People make references constantly to Buffalo Bill. There's even a lotion in the basket joke, which for me did not particularly well play. Um, Catherine Martin, who was the lone survivor of Buffalo Bill, she's a character here. And oh, yes, Precious the dog is back. So uh, so some people will be happy with that. Um, when he was on our podcast, Alex Kurtman said that if this was very much not a procedural, it should be said that the second episode of the three I've seen is completely a procedural episode. The third one just goes back to the original plot, and I assume it's going to be more serialized from there. But uh, it's interesting. Uh, Rachel Breeds, who plays Clarice, is doing, I would say, a good Jodie Foster impression. Whether she's going to at some point make this her own character, going to have to watch episodes. Uh, but... You listen to her West Virginia accent, and she is an Australian uh, actress, so not natural for her. She's doing an impression of a Jodie Foster West Virginia accent. This is not her doing her own thing, really, I would say, much at all. I think it's a good impression of Jodie Foster in that role. Again, it might become its own thing. She might become her own character. We'll see. Definitely not in any way a disaster. Some interesting elements... I will definitely watch more. So, yeah, that's that would be The Equalizer and Clarice, both on CBS. So, hey, two broadcast reviews in the Critics' Corner this week. Huzzah. And you can go back and listen to our interview with Alex Kurtzman about Star Trek and Clarice and so much more from episode 90 back in October. And coming next week, Jenny Lumet will join us to talk about Clarice. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. Thank you for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing, which really does help move us up the search listings at various podcasting platforms. We're always available on Twitter, and we're happy to chat with you if you have questions, comments, and concerns. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, though, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the number five, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.